Hi, I'm Elaine McCrimmon, Global Head of Reputation and External Engagement at AB InBev, and you're listening to Talking on Tap. Welcome back to the podcast. In this podcast, we'll be examining the recovery and our COVID-19 initiatives and how we can continue forward the path to meet the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. In this episode, we'll be joined by Pete Kramer, our Chief Supply Officer and Chief Brewmaster, and he'll be talking to us about how we've pivoted our supply chain to support our communities during the pandemic, how we've shifted from brewing beer to producing hand sanitizer. We'll then speak to Felipe Ombra, the Global Vice President for Corona, and Keenan Thompson, the Global Director of Packaging Innovation. And we'll talk to them about the sustainable packaging and really innovative and disruptive technologies which have been introduced. But stay tuned, because then we'll be joined by Rob Skinner, the Director of United Nations Information Centre. And he'll be sharing more information about the campaign Share Verified and how we can continue the path to meet the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Welcome to Talking on Tap. I'm very excited to introduce you to Pete Kramer, our Chief Supply Officer here at ABM Bev. Pete, welcome to the show. All right. Thank you. Glad to be here. First of all, a very big thank you to you and all of your team in supply. Team in supply has really been instrumental throughout this crisis and all of the initiatives that we've done. Can you tell us about how the supply team have pivoted to really support the need of our communities during the pandemic? Sure, Lane. When the pandemic started, you know, we have operations, significant operations in China. So we had a pretty early view of what was coming and we quickly saw, you know, what the needs would be as the pandemic started to spread. So that gave us an opportunity to brainstorm how we could help and what things that we could do to make things better in the communities where we do business. And we came up with all kinds of ideas. And the first ones were the simplest ones. Those were the easy ones. You know, hand sanitizer, for instance, you know, when the pandemic first started, you could find hand sanitizer anywhere. But we knew that everybody needed it. We needed it ourselves. We needed it at home. But also we needed it at work to keep our employees safe as they continued to operate through the whole pandemic. So we had to get creative on, on how do you make hand sanitizer? You know, where can we get the alcohol from? just so happens that we do have alcohol operations and we do have some distillation columns. So we were able to make some ourselves and get that package on a packaging line that we have and get for our employees. We did the same thing for masks. You know, masks were in short supply. So we found the manufacturers of mask machines and uh, we had those air freighted in and uh, along with the materials, we had to find the materials and we started making masks. And it goes on and on. It's gone to, you know, drinking water was another important thing that we did. A lot of the communities, you know, simple things like, you know, having a clean bottle of water, oxygen that became in short supply through the whole pandemic. So, of course, we started focusing on how could we get oxygen to the communities and ways to measure oxygen. So everything from oxygen concentrators to uh, pulse oximeters, you know, in hospital space, a simple place to lay down and get treatment. Some cities just simply didn't have enough beds and they filled up very quickly. So we used the opportunity and got our engineering staffs together and and got creative. And we were able to build some facilities very, very quickly and uh, and get them operational in time to get some help to the communities that needed them. 
Yeah, I believe even in Brazil, we were able to extend hospital capacity for up to 100 beds in like 30 days, you know, really being able to use that skill set on moving quickly and using the sort of management techniques that we have. Can you tell us a little bit more about the supply chain? We've got quite a unique supply chain. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Beer is brewed locally. So beer is a, is a local product made with local ingredients for the most part. And, and, you know, while we do some import and export, the bulk of our beer does come from our local communities. And because of that, it gave us some advantages and, and some disadvantages. One advantage was that we were able to keep our breweries running. Because of the raw materials that we're able to source locally, we're able to keep the supply chains moving. We're able to get the materials into our breweries. A lot of our employees live very close to the brewery, so we had to get creative on how to get them to work because many of the sources of transportation stopped. So we had to figure out ways to get employees to work and keep them, you know, of course, safe and separate. But at the end of the day, all of that seemed to come together and enabled us to operate. And then in terms of the beer supply chain, how can beer really play a role in economic recovery? Well, because beer is a local product, it really does make a big difference for the local economy. When you look at the raw materials, if you source the the materials locally and they're from the local farmers, we deal directly with the farming community to grow those crops. We're able to bring those into our facilities and then we're able to get them payment right away. So we know that money stays in the community. The people that work in our breweries, they live in the local communities as well. So we have jobs there for them as well operating brewery. And then there's the distribution. And our distribution is done by the local community directly to the accounts. And it helps them and their businesses as well by supplying them a product that they can go sell. And when you look at how many jobs are created for every job that we have in a brewery, it's a multiple. And because these breweries are so local, a lot of that economic activity stays right there in the area. Yeah. So there's a real multiplier effect being an engine of economic growth. So how do you see the supply chains evolving after the pandemic? Well, we learned a lot of things from the pandemic. Of course, pandemic brings out every strength and every weakness in an organization. And some of our strengths, of course, were to be able to rally our employees, bring out the creativity that they have. Um, We were able to leverage a lot of the skills. You know, when we talked about building a hospital, we use the same engineering skills that we use to build a brewery because we have to build breweries quickly and we use the same construction techniques. So we were able to engineer and design and build things very quickly with that same skill set. And of course, that will continue on. We learned, we, learned, we learned even more by having to build a hospital in, you know, in 30 days or, or somewhere around that. And then we can use that same skill set to help us you know, build breweries in the future. Another thing that came from the pandemic was employees needing to work more closely together, but we're not always standing next to each other. And now all of a sudden we couldn't stand next to each other, but we still had to communicate and we still had to work together. So we were able to learn how to communicate to each other in different ways. In some cases, we're able to use technology. We have employees Zooming, using Zoom, for instance, that technology from one room to the next because they couldn't be in the same room. But the most important part that came out was that employees understood how important it was to communicate because there were so many things going on at the business at the time. And, And we've been able to maintain that. And that's helped us to improve our base operations. It helps us brew better quality beer because we're closer to the operation because our employees are closer to each other. Yeah, and not just been investing in terms of the communities and helping our communities thrive, but 
even recently, I've seen our 1 billion investment that we have in the US in terms of that CapEx investment. Are you able to share a little bit more about that initiative over, over I believe, the next two years? Sure. There are a number of projects which are great investments in our business, but great investments in the communities where we do business. Probably the best example we have was a project that I was just looking at the other day, and it's called Evergreen. Yeah. And Ever, Evergreen started a few years ago just through a research project and employees were figuring out better ways to find value with some of the materials that we use. And one of them is the barley malt. And we don't use all of it during the brewing process. We only use some of it. Yeah. And so we have some very valuable components left over and we're trying to figure out how can you do something else with this? So we found a few startups that helped us and we developed a technology. And eventually what we came up with was a way to isolate pure barley protein from those grains that we did not need in the brewing process. And so when you talk about this billion-dollar investment, part of that is to build a whole plant, a factory inside our brewery where we brew the beer in St. Louis right next to it, where we take these grains that still have this incredible value in them, and they're very high quality. And we're able to turn that into barley protein for another food product. And it's a great story in sustainability because it makes more use of these raw materials that we have. It brings protein to the market with it and it uses less energy in other ways that you normally would to get that product. It also adds value to our business and it creates jobs because it's a place where we have people working and preparing that high quality protein that comes from our brewing barley. I'm so glad you shared that because we also spoke to Greg Bell from Evergreen and talked a little bit more about those products. So great to hear that aspect from you and how it all comes together in terms of that contribution, the economic impact that we're making. So how do you go about innovating to adapt and evolve in this new working world? The consumer today is pretty demanding. So they're not drinking just one type of beer anymore. And or or even when, you know, in one sitting, they may want two or three different kinds of beers or more and of different flavor intensities all within one sitting. And what that means for our brewmasters and for those doing innovation in our company is we need to bring our consumers the things that they're looking for. So we've expanded our innovation centers in all of our breweries, all of our zone offices, and we've created what we call agile teams where we have cross-functional groups working together to bring products to market faster. And in the past, you know, it, it, takes, a, it takes a while to develop a beer because the brewing cycle itself is a month. So if you brew a trial brew and then you taste it and then you brew another one, you, know, you have two or three months that have gone by. So we've been working on that, trying to figure out how can you get through that cycle faster. And by using more taste data from trials that we've done in the past, and by putting all our expertise together and putting these cross-functional teams, we're able to project better what results we're going to have when we brew, and then we can try more trials at the same time. And the result is that we're able to get more products out faster. We're able to give the consumer what they're looking for in terms of variety and meet the high quality demands that they have as well, all through this new innovation process. So Pete, tell us a little bit more about how we continue those very high quality beers, which of course involves tasting. How do we do that during a pandemic? That's a great question, Elaine. First of all, let me tell you a little bit about our tasting process. You know, the tasting process for our brewmasters is the absolute most important part of their day. 
And while we have very sophisticated instrumentation, ways to measure whether or not our brewing process is in control and is carrying out the way we want it to be, at the end of the day, the best way to measure it is through taste because you can't measure everything through an analytical or or lab instrument, but you can taste just about everything. And so it's so important to continue that tasting process. And all of our breweries, we taste every batch of beer before it moves from one stage to the next. And we had to continue that. And we do it with taste panels because not every single person is sensitive to every taste compound. So if you ask, how can you have a taste panel in a pandemic, you know, when we're supposed to be wearing masks and we need to keep separate and we had to get pretty creative. So so what we did was, first of all, we had to spread out. So we needed more taste rooms. So we expanded our taste rooms and simply made them bigger. And then what we did was we created this system where we had one person with a mask bringing the samples And when you bring the samples in, the glasses have to be perfectly clean. And and in this room, everything has to be just the right way. So that person would come in and make sure everything was set up. And then one taster would come in at a time by themselves so that we were separate. And then they had the time to really study the samples and make sure they meet our quality demands. And then we did that a minimum of four times in a row because we need a minimum of four tasters for each session. So it took longer (laughs) and it took a different way to set it up. But at the end of the day, it really allowed our tasters a chance to focus even more than they normally would because they had the quiet room where they could really focus on tasting their beer. And then they still had the collaboration after the tasting was done where everybody could talk to each other via Zoom or in a much larger room where they could be separated. So we were able to get it done, <laughs> again, with some creativity and some benefits came from it, too, because we learned, you know, maybe some better ways to focus a little bit more when you're tasting. And you can see things that maybe you were rushing through or you couldn't otherwise get done. Now you could really focus on seeing those things. Yeah, you really take me back to one of my very first jobs. I do remember being part of those tasting panels One of the best parts of the job, of course, and actually everyone always looked forward to the discussion, but I can really see how that would come to life and be much more focused, being able to taste it on your own and then have a discussion later. It's great to see that there's been learnings applied there. Thanks for sharing that. So one final question is, what is the one leadership lesson that you'd like to share with our listeners? Probably the most important thing that we've learned, not just through the pandemic, but just from our daily operations and really focusing on what we do, is there's so much power and creativity in the front line of our company. And when we go out and we spend a lot of time on the front line with our employees that are operating the equipment, and they're actually brewing the beer, and they're moving the beer from point A to point B, they see so many things in their day. And they're so creative that when, uh, you know, when we all work together to solve a problem, we get much better solutions and it's really a much better way to run our business. So we've adapted all of our operations to operate in that mode all the time. And it's been a real game changer for us. That's great. That's certainly one that we'll all take away. And as I said at the beginning, a big thank you to you and your team. And I know just how proud everyone is of all of that work that's been done over that past year and a half. Well, Lane, I'm very proud of the team. When I look at the thought that they put into their work and the things that they wanted to come up with to help the community, their desire to make things better, it was just really incredible to see to see that kind of effort going on. And if there's one thing I'm really thankful for, it's the work that everybody has done. When this pandemic first surfaced, you know, we still needed to run and our employees needed to come to work. 
And none of us really knew, uh, you know, what the implications would be or how this would unfold or what was really going to happen. And without blinking an eye, our employees came to work and kept the breweries running, followed all the safety protocol and built even better protocols as we learned more going forward. And it was really an impressive period of time and impressive work by them when you look at what they're able to accomplish and the hard work and the dedication that they had to be able to carry on through the whole pandemic. Pete, you and the team have a lot to be proud of indeed. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of these initiatives. All right. Thanks, Lane. I'm very pleased to introduce to you two guests, Felipe Ombra, our Global Vice President of Corona, and Keenan Thompson, our Global Director for Packaging Innovation. Felipe, can you tell us about Corona's ambition and the connection with nature? Sure. It's a pleasure to be here, Alain. Corona is an amazing brand that I have the pleasure of working with. And we used to say that was born in nature, right? In this pristine beach that we can find in Mexico. Yeah. A product that we say that came from the natural world. It's made with natural ingredients. So the way that we mentioned that's like, if you came from the natural world, reverence the natural world in everything that you do. Yeah. And if you want consumers to be in nature and to enjoy corona in nature, we need to protect it, right? So yeah. the ways of reverencing nature for corona is not only by showcasing nature, but it's also to guarantee that in every single initiative and strategy for the brand, nature is at the center and we're caring about protecting uh, and inviting consumers to enjoy. So corona as a purpose has the purpose of inviting consumers to disconnect from routine and reconnect with their insatiable nature. And we believe that that happens at the moment that people are outdoors. Yeah. So we want people to be enjoying the outdoors in pristine beaches primarily. But if the beach is polluted, if nature is not in its best shape, then they won't be able to enjoy it at its best, right? So that's why we embrace nature in everything that we do. Yeah, I love the connection with the beaches. So as part of the recovery, how are we reconnecting consumers with Corona through our marketing campaigns and initiatives? The biggest challenge that we faced with Corona during this big global crisis is that, as I mentioned, our role is to invite consumers to disconnect outside. But people were prevented of being outside, right, for months in lockdown. So what we did is that in the first moment, we put on hold all of our Corona initiatives because we didn't want to be tone deaf, right? The brand wouldn't be appealing to consumers in such a challenging context. But at a certain point, after monitoring the reactions of consumers in social listening, we realized that people needed this mental disconnection. So the first initiative that we did was to invite people to mentally disconnect and the development of content and branded entertainment was crucial in this journey. So we released what we called our first original content series, Free Range Humans Lies Outside the Cage, as part of Corona Studios, our new venture. And then on a weekly basis, we were releasing new content to consumers so that they could at least mentally disconnect and reconnect to nature. And now, as consumers start to evolve from the lockdowns, then we can invite them to physically disconnect as well. There are lots of initiatives for them to keep experiencing the outdoors, coming back to traveling, 
coming back to reconnecting with the pristine nature and the beaches in the world. Yeah, I love the free range humans. If you haven't had a chance to look at that, then please check out those content videos. They're really fascinating. Moving to you, Keenan, can you tell us about your role and the intersection between marketing and technology? Tell us about how you approach the role. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Elaine. So I work in a part of the company called GTEC. It's the Global Innovation Technology Center. And part of what we do is work with the brands, work with the commercial side of the business, partners like Felipe and the Corona team to essentially understand the brief, right? What are they trying to accomplish? um, And what technology are they going to need to be able to accomplish that? And different parts of the company can execute solutions that suppliers offer that are available. But sometimes the brand wants to do something that isn't necessarily available or has a brief or a demand and something new needs to be innovated and created. We call it front-end innovation. But essentially, we sit between the technology providers and technology innovators and we sit between the brands and we basically find ways to take the brief and find solutions. And this is a really great example of building that solution with external partners and internal partners over the past three years. So Keenan, can you tell us how did the innovative Corona new packaging solution come about? Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, every good innovation starts with a good brief. And where this one specifically started was with folding carton. So the paper material that we make baskets and boxes, folding carton containers with. Uh, We were looking for some suppliers that could do some more interesting solutions that could help differentiate our brands. And we're also looking for sustainable options. And about three years ago, the, the main hurdle that we would run into in that type of a brief was cost. So if we're looking for a solution from a vendor that's differentiated, our typical vendors would have a solution with a high VIC, a high cost of goods. And so that was essentially our brief was how can we work to give differentiated solutions that were sustainable, but without increasing cost structure. And we started looking through different parts of the business. We were looking at there were different parts of the value chain. We were looking at materials. We were looking about structures and designs. We were looking about the machines themselves in the value chain and how the, either the material was produced or how the different packaging components came together. And what we found was an amazing pulping technology where it was a new to world technology that was being developed by a partner externally for over 10 years before we were involved. And what we were was the partner to help bring that technology to life. So we started working with sustainable fiber technologies three years ago. And what it did was unlock an opportunity for us to start making pulp from things that were not wood based. You know, today, most paper in our industry, because of its need to be very strong, comes from trees and comes from wood pulp. And what we're able to do is look into our value chain, look into our non-wood biomass, such as our barley straw, and figure out, okay, if we, if we harvest the grain, what's left? Well, what's left is the straw. So we can take that straw and with this new technology, turn it into pulp, which we are blending in with 100% recycled fibers and creating paper, turning that paper into a package And the resulting package is at parity and even recipes are even stronger than our original incumbent solution. So very exciting technology and what a great partner with Felipe and his team to bring this to life on the Corona brand. 
Yeah, I think this is just fascinating that we have packaging made from barley straw. It just doesn't seem to be the thing that comes immediately to mind. But now that you tell the story, it really does make sense. And obviously makes sense that we make use of every part of the barley plant that we can. Let's move to you, Felipe. Why was it so important to really find a solution in the packaging? Yeah, this is the great part that Tina just mentioned around the brief. Why are we doing this? That's the question, right? And the reason I kind of touched in the beginning, Corona comes from the natural world. We feel that we belong to nature as a brand. So the dream and the challenge that we set to ourselves is that we want to become the reference for naturalness and sustainability in the beverage industry. Like we want to be seen as thought leaders in this industry. We want Corona to lead the agenda, not only because we want to be recognized about that, but because we want to influence the entire world of CPGs in following that path. Because the role that we play in the world is to invite people to disconnect. If the world outside is not pristine, people won't be able to accomplish that. So our role to the society in this case is to push the industry so that everybody is trying to protect nature, embracing nature, so that our consumers can keep enjoying nature. It's going way beyond our role as a beer brand. It's the utility that we provide to the consumers much beyond a great product that we are offering to them. Right. So then that was the brief. Kenan, how can we find sustainable ways so that we can keep protecting nature? And he managed in the packaging side, said, Felipe, there is this amazing alternative of trying to recreate the secondary packaging. And then I said, I'm bought in, let's go in and let's use the power of Corona to amplify the awareness of this new technology. So at this point, it's still a pilot. It's small. We are doing certain countries to prove the feasibility. But now that we announced that the world is aware not only the beer industry, not only the beverage industry, other industries are aware that there is this more sustainable version of the pack that could be 100% circular. And then luckily, we yeah. are going to be able to start to influence suppliers. And then by influencing suppliers, we start to influence other industries. And then we make a big contribution to the world. Felipe is absolutely yeah. right. That's essentially where the power of an AB InBev and the power of the Corona brand equity is able to really change an entire industry, right? So we're talking about a paper industry that has been in a beverage paper industry that has really been built around wood and wood fibers and forests. And what we're doing is bringing an entire new raw material to that world. And suppliers are engaging and they're excited and they're helping us build the future. And the Corona brand is really leading the entire shift, which is amazing. Yeah, really exciting and, and very disruptive technology that you mentioned. So is there plans to be able to scale it? You know, what are the next steps, Keenan? When you think about wood fibers and you think about non-wood biomass, there's lots of different agricultural non-wood biomass out there. And to bring any of that into the world of paper, first you need to turn it into pulp, then you need to turn it into paper, and then you need to turn it into a packaging solution. We have various specifications for various packaging requirements that we need to meet. So the next step for GTEC and for the technology group is to really try to achieve and beat our incumbent solutions in terms of performance and at the same time create the value chain that can bring this to life at the scale that we need to make it happen across the globe. So it's building partnerships. It's doing more testing. 
It's running more trials and it's creating new designs and new structures and decorating things in ways that we bring the Corona brand positioning to life as well. You make it sound easy, but really, how difficult is it to get that balance between an innovation that's both environmentally friendly and consumer friendly, Keenan? I think you just brought up two really important points. And, you know, one point is we need to help consumers make the right choice because consumer perception and technical reality can sometimes be in two different places. And one of my roles is essentially to make sure that the technology that we're bringing to life is also something that the consumer is excited about purchasing because it looks as attractive for the consumer as it is for the environment. And and it's a good challenge for us to, to make that happen. So bringing lots of different partners to the table that are part of the value chain and really working together to figure it out. Innovation is not easy, but innovation is something where you make a change and it adds value. And if you go along the value chain and one of those partners along the value chain, you're taking value away, typically innovation is stifled and it doesn't happen. So it's up to us to kind of look up and down that chain and make sure that everybody is benefiting from this new technology. Yeah. And to this point, Ellen, one thing that I want to mention is that we have our procurement team fully involved in this process because they are as bought into the message of sustainability and the mindset of sustainability as we are. But they need to guarantee that this is a sustainable solution, not only from the environment perspective, but also from the PL perspective. Because if this is going to cost us 10x what the current packaging solution costs, yeah. it's not going to happen at scale, right? So the challenge now that Keenan, the GTech team, and the procurement team working together are facing and are embracing the challenge is like, how can we make it happen at scale, but at a cost level that is at minimal, the same as we have nowadays? Yeah. Right. But potentially what we are learning is that if we can scale this up with the big top suppliers, that can be potentially lower cost than the existing solution that we have. So if it's a solution that is even cheaper than what we got now, it's kind of the perfect win because environment wins, consumers wins, brand wins, and the PL wins. That's kind of the sweet spot that we are looking for. It doesn't start with the PL. The PL is an enabler. Right. It starts with the mission of yeah. the brand, the purpose, and what we want to address with the consumers. But then the PL cannot be a roadblock. Right. We need to be conscious yeah. of that. But if the PL starts to become a roadblock, then it never escalates. Yeah, excellent point, Felipe. And you hit on most of the major benefits for different parts and different components of the value chain. And there's two more very important ones. We're creating local economies in two ways. We are creating an opportunity to pay farmers more. We're creating value for farmers where they aren't necessarily getting the most value from their leftover biomass, their leftover straw, as they do today. So there's an economic opportunity for them there. And we're also creating an industry around collection and collection of biomass, collection of barley straw. So very exciting space. It really is. It's amazing to see this fantastic progress and the project really come to life, not just for consumers, but as you say, even throughout the supply chain and really creating that economic recovery, which we all really need right now. So Corona is really leading in this space. But Felipe, can you tell us a little bit more of what you see for Corona's future from a marketing perspective? Yeah, I would say that being seen as the reference for naturalness and sustainability is the objective. We challenge ourselves to provide utility or value to consumers beyond being a great beer, right? Because we consider that being a great beer is like 
table stake. It's what consumers are expecting from us. We need to go beyond that. And in terms of sustainability, and we know that CSR platforms are really relevant for consumers overall. And for the corona consumers, they are even more important because the corona consumers are ultra connected to nature. So uh, we have a big work stream on sustainability and we are just touching here on circularity. But there are other work streams that connect to circularity. They're closed, but we are in a very strong project to guarantee that we are protecting the oceans. And the biggest threat for the oceans is plastics, right? We know that the oceans are drowning in plastics. So in 2017, we started a very robust pilot for the oceans, which a commitment called the 100 Islands Protected Commitment that we accomplished last year. But we didn't stop there. We kept evolving and doing yeah. lots of activities to prevent plastic of reaching the oceans or to recollect plastics with cleanups all over the globe. This program keeps expanding. So yeah. I'm super excited with the new announcement that we just made that Corona, after years of assessing how we could contribute to this project, we are achieving the certification of net zero plastic footprint. What it means to be net zero plastic footprint is that any potential remaining piece of plastics that we have in our supply chain that could be in the, on the logistics, could be in the tertiary packaging, whatever remaining plastics that you have, you need to guarantee that you are offsetting that, that you are recovering from the environment and you're providing a second destination, recycling that. So Corona invested for the last three years in everything that we could do to reduce our footprint. So for example, we are removing the PSL from the back label of the bottles. We are removing the high cone for the cans for the export market to invest millions of dollars in machinery to be able to remove the high cone for the exports market. And now we invested in facilities of recycling centers to be able to offset the remaining plastics that we have, achieving the badge of net zero plastic footprint. But we don't want to stop there. To announce that, we want to invite consumers and organizations to turn net zero plastic footprint themselves as well. So we are releasing a tool called the Plastic Reality which is basically a calculator for consumers to be able to simulate based on the regions that they live and on their habits of plastics consumptions on simple six questions. They can understand what's their level of plastics footprint for the year. And they will be able with an augmented reality to simulate their plastics in their living rooms so that they can have this tangible uh, to them. And then they're going to be able to see these plastics getting to the beach because around 10% of the plastics ends up getting to the beach. They're going to be able to look around at the beach and see the plastics there. And then they will find a space to take action. And the website will provide alternatives for them to drop their consumption of plastics, to pledge around not using single-use plastics, for example. They can donate to NGOs. They can buy credits of plastics and on and on and on. So it's kind of a big journey to not only guarantee that we are doing the right thing for the environment from the corona standpoint, but also we are recruiting people that share the same mindset to embark in this journey with us. That's an amazing call to action for the brand and nothing more visual than actually seeing a whole year's consumption of plastic from an individual or family and then being placed on one of your favorite beaches. I'm sure that's going to have a huge uptake in terms of you know, changing consumer behavior, which we all know is incredibly difficult to do, but, you know, very important to do as well. 
Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more, Felipe, around some of the other initiatives that you've been doing with Corona to make a positive impact? Sure. This topic is a never-ending conversation. There are so much that Corona can keep doing. So another thing that we did in 2019, we created a apparel line called Protect Paradise. That is basically a line of t-shirts, board shorts, towels, items that you could use whenever you are at the beach that are made of upcycled plastics so that whenever consumers buy an item from Corona, by buying, they're helping. So for example, in this plastic reality too, people are going to be able to go and buy some of those items because at the moment that they buy, they're offsetting part of their footprint just by buying, right? Because we are upcycling plastics with the money that they are investing in that specific item, right? So it's kind of a circular economy mindset. Consumers engage with the brand and because they're engaging, just by engaging, they are doing good to the environment. So this is another thing that we are doing. And there's much more to come. And Corona, as I mentioned, we are going to be keeping the mindset on how we can become the reference for naturalness and sustainability. And just touching on the other aspect of that, on naturalness, we are making a big statement now in this territory because we are made with 100% natural ingredients. That's so important for us. And we realize that the consumers not necessarily know that. So we are also launching a new campaign for Corona, proudly stating that we are made with 100% natural ingredients. And that's something that is coming to the world in the upcoming months. We just started the campaign at the UK last month, and now it follows with many other markets on board in this journey, just to proudly state that beer and Corona is made with 100% natural ingredients. Yeah. Is a beautiful tasting beer, but also just knowing that it is a hundred percent natural ingredients really does help. And I also like the fact you gave me an excuse to expand my wardrobe with some new Corona apparel. I'm looking forward to be able to get maybe some upcycled t-shirts. Now, finally, just a final question to both of you. It's been a very challenging year all around, you know, and being able to bring projects like this to life is just fascinating. But maybe if you can leave our audience with with, you know, what your leadership lesson is, what have you both learned the past year? And maybe if we start with Felipe and then over to Keenan. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I believe that the first thing is that you got to be resilient in everything that you do. You need to have 100% of clarity of your purpose, of what you stand for, what's your role, what's the contribution that you're going to be able to make to the society, the contribution that you're going to be able to make to the consumers and stick to that. Be consistent and resilient. Because if the strategy is right and you stick to it, it might take a little bit longer if you face a roadblock, but you're going to get there if you insist. So that for me is like a big lesson from last year. We had to stop for a second, for a while, let it breathe, and then say, okay, now it's the moment for us to come back. And we didn't change a thing on the Corona strategy after the crisis. What we did is that we were consistent to what we believed and the results are there. The brand keep growing solid double-digit growth in every single country in the world. So I'm super happy that the call was like, okay, stop for a second, let the water calm down until you're ready to come back. And I take that for my life as well. Every time that you face a roadblock, it doesn't mean that you need to change your strategy. It's just like, if you're convinced that the strategy is right, be resilient and keep pushing that direction because then you're going to be successful. Great tips. Thank you, Felipe. Keenan? 
Absolutely. So I also teach corporate innovation and accelerated design thinking at EADA and at the University of Cambridge. And one of the most important lessons to be learned in all this is growth mindset when you are trying to innovate. So innovation is a change that adds value. And you got to figure out where that value is for everybody in the value chain. And that takes a lot of persistence, definitely takes a lot of passion, takes some risk taking. And you need to basically enjoy what you do, right? And, and have fun with it. So, you know, I think those are the big ones for me is making sure that growth mindset is part of your everyday life and continuing to push the change. Very, very good tips there. Be resilient and have the growth and learner mindset. Thank you both. It's been really a fantastic conversation. I could keep this conversation going because I know that there's way more innovations and way more initiatives. I think we'll just need to get you guys back on the show. But thank you so much, Felipe. And thank you, Keenan. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Keelan. A very warm welcome to Robert Skinner, Director of United Nations Information Center. Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks, Elaine. It's great to be here. I'm talking on tap. It's great. So, Robert, take us back to the beginning of the pandemic. You were part of the crisis response team at the United Nations and led a phenomenal initiative called Share Verified. Can you tell us what it is and how it came about? Thanks, Elaine. And, and it was yeah, quite a period we were going through back then in you know February, March of 2020, when we were all just coming to terms with the fact that COVID-19 was truly a pandemic and we were all going to have to deal with it. And at that time, Secretary General Guterres, UN Secretary General Guterres, recognized, along with Dr. Tedros of the WHO, that we not only had a health crisis, but we also had a communications crisis. And it was described by both of them at that time as the infodemic, the COVID-19 infodemic. You know, the airways, our screens, everything was being flooded with misinformation, disinformation, just so many things coming at us. And the Secretary General said to us in the Department of Global Communications at the UN, we need to combat this misinformation with accurate, science-based, factual information and basically, you know, flood people's screens, flood the airways with this solid information, accurate information. So we formed a partnership with a movement building organization called Purpose to do just that. You know, we brought the global network of the United Nations together with the rapid communications and movement building response of Purpose, the ability to create content quickly that they brought to the table and said, okay, we are going to start pushing out this accurate information. And again, that information was coming from the WHO, from UNICEF, other partners that had the facts about what we were going through at the time um, when we were watching the development of the pandemic. So that's what we did. And we did that not only, as I said, with Purpose, but with partners and collaborators around the world, media outlets, the social media platforms, you know, private sector entities like AB InBev, Elaine, and your help was great throughout all of that as we were getting up and running. But we also said to volunteers, citizens around the world, join us, share verified, sign up, get this content, get this information, and then share it within your networks. Because we found that, you know, who do people trust? They trust their friends, they trust their family, they trust their community organizations, and they trust the people they're on social media networks with. And so we said, take this content, share it with your friends and family and others, uh, so that we can reach as many people as we possibly can, as quickly as we can, to try and overcome this flood of bad information. Let's get the good information out there. 
Yeah, I can see for that share verified campaign, if people want to access it, it's shareverified.com. And it's done in such an engaging way. It's taking what is actually, in some cases, very complex information, but done in such a simple way for people to be able to share it and keep the knowledge going and ensuring that within their sphere of influence, that they can have an impact at that community level. So how has Share Verified evolved over time? Can you share the different phases and how people can really amplify the content and get involved? Right. At the outset with the Verified Initiative, we were looking at sort of three components of it. Obviously, the health crisis. We had to get information about how people could protect themselves and their families from getting the virus, you know, the masking, the social distancing, yeah. uh, you know, those kinds of pieces of information. But we also knew that there was a socioeconomic crisis. It's clearly been a significant part of what we've had to deal with, that literally tens of millions of people losing jobs, children having to not be able to go to school, all kinds of impacts flowing from the fact that we all had to deal with this pandemic. And then, of course, there's the recovery phase that we're looking at, because in some parts of the world, we're starting to come out of this and we're trying to figure out how we can recover better or build back better. So those were kind of the three components at the beginning. We also recognize that all three were happening at the same time in many places. So what we thought of as maybe sort of sequential components of it have really become simultaneous. You know, right now, it feels like in the United States, we are in the recovery phase to some degree, even though people are still getting sick. But in other parts of the world, the health crisis is massive. I think India has been so much in the news, but there are other places around the world in Latin America. I have many close friends in Trinidad and Tobago. They are dealing with a crisis in that country. So we're seeing that health crisis continue while the socioeconomic impacts are continuing, while other parts of the world seem to be moving ahead and doing better like we are in the United States. So we had to think about what kind of content we could have and create. Again, that you just said, Elaine, is really accessible that people can understand that competes with some of the very slick and compelling false information, misinformation, which is why we created this kind of content that can be easily shared on social media, is attractive and compelling um, and can move rapidly across platforms. And so that's what we try to do when we try to address all three of those components. Right now, you know, we're focused on solidarity and the recovery from COVID-19 with the only together. Only together can we get people vaccinated. Only together can, yeah. we, can we work together to recover once we get enough shots in arms. Yeah. And I also see the, you know, we're not safe until we're all safe and and making sure that we have access around the world. Now, moving to your current role and, you know, you talked about countries being at very different stages of recovery. You know, what does that really mean for the achievement of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals? We feel fortunate as we're looking at this recovery phase that the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs for short, that they exist, or or Global Goals, some people call them the Global Goals as well. But in the UN, we go with the SDGs as the official name. So the SDGs provide the roadmap after they're developed in 2015 for greater equality, better lives, battling the climate crisis. You know, it was laid out in 2015, and now we're looking and saying, okay, Isn't it great that we already have this? We have the roadmap for recovery. We just have to follow it. And we have to really double down on how we're going to take this on. And, you know, I think it's impossible to say there are any benefits from the COVID-19 pandemic. But I think the one thing that's been demonstrated, which is very much a part of the goals, is that it's multi-sectoral. You know, one country can't achieve recovery from the pandemic alone. And one sector can't do it alone either. So we need government. 
We need the private sector. And thankfully, we have companies like ABM Bev who are stepping up. And, you know, Elaine, we've been working for years together on thinking about how we can do that yeah. around the SDGs. And we need civil society and academia to come up with answers. And we need citizens to say, I'm going to play my role as well. So working across those sectors to say, you know, we can take on the climate crisis while we're recovering from COVID-19. We can make sure we continue to focus on gender equity because we know that women have taken a significant hit through the COVID-19 yeah. crisis in terms of their movements toward equality around the world. We can still focus on education. We have to make sure we get quality education for children around the world. And that's certainly taken a significant hit. Thinking about my own children who have access to technology and can stay connected, you know, they've had a tough year. But think of the people that aren't connected, the kids that aren't connected around the world, how difficult it's been for them to keep up with their education. So. All of that is part of the goals. We're all going to have to work together across sectors to say we can do this while we recover. And in some ways, we can work toward a more equitable recovery as we follow the goals. So uh, there's hope that we've learned some lessons through the COVID-19 pandemic about working together and working in solidarity to achieve things. And we'll hope for that. We'll hope for that over the course of the next 10 years as we go to 2030 with the goals. Yeah, yeah, you can really see the people wanting the recovery to be building back better, you know, a, a greener recovery, a, a more inclusive recovery. So can you share the scale of the issues and really concentrate a little bit about the development gains that we've lost over the past year? Yeah. And I just heard the Secretary General himself speak at an event this morning, and he really was putting it in perspective. And to quote him, you know, he said, at least 3.4 million lives have been lost, 500 million jobs have disappeared, and trillions of dollars have been wiped from global balance sheets. And, you know, and those are just the big numbers, not just around yeah. jobs, right? And then you can get deeper into like, how many children are out of school? How many children will not go back to school? You know, what has happened to, as I mentioned earlier, to women in the workplace? And I think we're still tallying those figures and tallying those numbers globally. I mean, there are more statistics here in the U.S. because, you know, we're kind of through the phases and we're hopefully on this road to recovery. And I don't want to get into any specific figures, but I think that it's going to be a super challenge to think about all these things and building back. We can do it. I mean, I think we've recognized that there are opportunities going to be created, whether it's, you know, rebuilding cities in a more climate friendly way, in a more equitable way, you know, whether it's rethinking schools and making sure that all children have the connectivity the next time yeah. around when we fight the next pandemic. So the scale is enormous. The challenge is enormous. But I think that by coming together and listening to each other and talking to each other and, yeah. and bringing the, the power of the private sector to bear with governments, with civil society, we can really, we can recover better. I, I truly believe that. Yeah, and amazing how much companies, organizations, schools were able to pivot, not everywhere, but in some, as you say, with the technology. Now, you mentioned inclusivity. How can we really ensure a more inclusive recovery? I think we can ensure it by being inclusive about how we talk about the recovery, by including groups in the conversation that maybe haven't been part of the conversation, including communities. You know, over many years, and this has been studied by people that know a lot more about it than I do, when we're talking about providing assistance, whether it's humanitarian assistance yeah. or development assistance, often the people that are, are going to be impacted by it in the communities we're trying to help are not necessarily part of the planning. And I think that, you know, the way that COVID impacted communities in the pandemic, you know, the essential workers came from sectors we maybe wouldn't have thought about as being essential before it started. You know, and how was that impacted? Which communities were the most impacted by the disease and for the brunt of it? It tended to be the underserved communities that we already knew were there. Mm -hmm. 
but we weren't sure just how severe that impact would be in a case like this when you're dealing with a pandemic. So thinking about making sure that all voices are at the table, that leadership listens to the communities that were impacted and how they feel about how they can recover better, and then making that significantly a part of the planning. And so I think we have to be listening learning and taking the sense of what the impacts were and how the communities feel about what they need into significant consideration. And I hope our leadership is listening at the national levels, but also at the city and community levels. And I think we're seeing that happening. Yeah, I really hope they're listening too, but that makes perfect sense, especially as we look to that inclusive recovery. So what's the UN's role in ensuring that we really don't lose sight of the decade in action? Yeah, I think that even while the pandemic has been causing such great harm, the the UN has never lost sight of the decade and the fact that we had, even before the pandemic, had a long way to go on the SDGs. Through the course of the pandemic, particularly in the early stages, the Secretary General, using the entire UN system and friends and partners, was putting together policy briefs around what the impacts were and thinking about how much more we would need to do in the decade of action to 2030 to recover. And I think, you know, the UN's strongest role is really convening the actors that can make a difference in their recovery in, in our efforts to achieve the SDGs, you know, bringing together business leaders, of course, the governments which make up the United Nations, experts from civil society and saying, you know, we do this a lot. We get together a lot. We talk a lot. But let's focus on action, which is what the decade of action is all about. You know, let's actually drive solutions and then drive actions to make a difference. And I think, I mean, you saw the United Nations going in that direction following the adoption of the SDGs. And I think, again, this pandemic has said, okay, we need to be more inclusive in the way we think about who can have an impact on the recovery. And that includes, as you said earlier, Elaine, nobody is safe until we're all safe or we're not safe until we're all safe from the pandemic. And I think we can't make progress until we're all included in the efforts to make that progress. Yeah, I think that uh, is very strong. In terms of ABM, Bev, we always like to say we bring people together for a better world. And you know, certainly as the UN is a convener, we're very much the same mindset that more can be achieved by working together. And I think certainly one of the things that's come through in the pandemic is actually being able to work at speed and at pace and being able to keep that up, I think, will actually help us collectively in achieving the SDGs as well. So what's your top leadership lesson? That's the final question that I'd like to leave is um, what have you learned this past year? What do you take with you into the future? Yeah, Elaine, I've said it a couple of times in the course of our conversation, and it is really listen, whether it's working with your staffs as a manager whether it's working with partners, and I pull this very much from the work over the years I've done on partnership, that you really have to understand what your team in the workplace is interested in, what their ideas, how they think that the workplace can be improved. But with the partnership space, what, what I've often found is you often have sectors that don't traditionally work together trying to find a way forward to find solutions, and they may not speak the same language. Right. Business doesn't necessarily speak the same language as a UN bureaucrat like myself. It doesn't necessarily speak the same language as an investor, doesn't maybe speak the same language as an NGO or a community worker on the ground in a region that we're not all that familiar with. So having to have that conversation and listen to what the other parties are saying and try and make everyone understand where we're trying to go, what the objectives are and how we can best get there. 
I think is absolutely critical. So it's listening, understanding, and trying to reach that common solution with a common understanding. Robert, thank you very much for joining the show and for sharing that update with us. I really look forward to hopefully having you on the show again soon. No, thank you, Elaine. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Talking on Tap, a podcast series from AB InBev. I'm your host, Elaine McCrimmon, and we've been talking to Pete Kramer, our Chief Supply Officer and Chief Brewmaster, Felipe Ombra, the Global Vice President for the global brand Corona, Keenan Thompson, Global Director of Packaging Innovation, and Rob Skinner, the Director of United Nations Information Center. If you'd like to learn more about these subjects, please visit ab-inbev.com as well as check out the campaign that Rob shared, shareverified.com. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you've enjoyed this series, then please subscribe, rate, and review us. And if you think others will enjoy it too, please share with your family, friends, and colleagues. Thanks for joining us. We are AB InBev. This is Margot Miller from the AB InBev legal team. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by AB InBev solely for informational purposes and is general in nature. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employees, or agents of AB InBev, are not necessarily those of AB InBev and may not be current. AB InBev does not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the content contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, is expressly disclaimed. Certain of the statements may have been forward-looking in nature and based on the current expectations and views of future events and developments of the speakers and are naturally subject to uncertainty and changes in circumstances. AB InBev does not undertake any obligation to provide any form of update, amendment, change, or correction to any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions set forth in this podcast.